This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. My name is Tejas Parashar. I'm a research fellow in political thought at King's College, Cambridge. I'm joined today by Professor Tae Yuan Kum, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Professor Kum is a political theorist broadly interested in ancient political thought and its reception, in 20th century German social thought, and in the intersection of political theory and literature. She received her PhD from the Department of Government at Harvard in 2017 and was previously the Christopher Tower Junior Research Fellow at Christchurch, Oxford. Her new book, which we'll be discussing today, is titled Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought. The book has recently been published by Harvard University Press, and it's a striking, beautifully written account of how Plato's theory of the role of myth in political life has been taken up by a range of European thinkers from the early modern period down to the 20th century. The book takes us from Plato's own uses of myth in the Republic, to readings of Plato in the early modern writings of Thomas More and Francis Bacon, to 18th century German idealist philosophy, and then into the first half of the 20th century. Taeyeon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So first of all, many congratulations on the book. And to to start, could you just tell us a little bit about how you arrived at this project? Did you always intend to write about the modern reception of Greek philosophy? Uh, no, no, and thank you for the question. Yeah, so like I, I went. So this book came out of my um, my PhD dissertation, and I did go into graduate school intending to write a dissertation just on Plato. And um, and I think in the background, I think I had always been especially attracted to Plato's myths in particular. So uh, Plato's myths are these vivid, fantastical stories that Plato invented and integrated into his philosophical dialogues, so like the myth of metals in the Republic or the eschatological myths at the end of the Phaedo or the Gorgias and the Republics, myths like that. But I think a moment that I've later come to look back on as a kind of aha moment that sparked the idea for the book was when I was sitting in a seminar taught by the great late Patrick Riley, and I came across a myth in a philosophical treatise written by Leibniz, a philosopher writing two millennia after Plato. So that's the petite fable at the end of the Theodicy, which ended up being the topic of the third chapter of my book. But um, so yeah, briefly, the petite fable is this mythic dream vision about the coherence of the cosmos that concludes Leibniz's treatise on justice, the Theodicy which is itself a title that Leibniz really went out of his way to Hellenize or kind of like Greekify because it's 
uh, Theos Dike, the justice of God. And that to me seemed like an obvious uh, homage to Plato's myth of Ur, the mythic dream vision about the coherence of the cosmos that concludes Plato's Republic. And to some extent also to um, Scipio's dream, this mythic dream vision about the coherence of the cosmos that concludes Cicero's Republic. So this is when I started thinking that maybe Leibniz's myth was following in a distinct tradition. So that's when I started asking, well, who else was doing this? Who who else was writing myths modeled after Plato's myths and sticking them in philosophical treatises? And why would a modern political philosopher even want to do that? So uh, so my book is, at the most basic level, uh, a book about the legacy of Plato's myths uh, in modern political thought. Um, I just want to say, but uh, so that's the basic level. Um, but there's also uh, another level at which the book is also more broadly an inquiry into the place of myth in modern politics and philosophy. So post-truth politics really wasn't a thing when I started this project, but it very much was a thing by the time I was finishing it. Um, And so I don't really define myth in terms of disinformation or things that are factually wrong. And this is something we can talk about later, but uh, more recent shifts in culture and politics from the last several years have definitely helped impress upon me that myth is something that merits serious attention on the part of political theorists. So that was also something that was working in the background quite a bit later um, in the later stages of writing this book. Fascinating. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit about the figure at the center of the book, Mm -hmm. Plato himself. So in a study of what you call the mythic tradition, is there a reason that you chose to focus on Plato and his legacy in particular? Is there anything distinctive about the Platonic approach to myth as opposed to, say, Homer or the epics? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, so the... uh... I chose Plato because, or uh, Plato became important uh, for for my story because uh, what I was trying to push back against was the certain um, uh, canonical reputation that Plato has for being uh, this kind of like founding figure for the entire Western intellectual tradition and being uh, that founding figure in a very, um, a fairly narrow way, I think. So um, Plato at some point gained this reputation for uh, having founded philosophy on kind of like rational grounds by divorcing it from uh, the likes of myths. So in the formulation of um, this 20th century German classicist, Wilhelm Nestle, Plato was at the center of this Greek revolution that uh, turned the tide of philosophy so that it uh, set got set on this path uh, that he called uh, the path uh, from mythos to logos, from from myth to, to logic, uh, I guess. And um, so that was what I was pushing back against because I thought that reputation seemed very much in tension with the fact that Plato wrote these these rich, uh, beautiful myths. Um, so I think that was the the point of interest uh, here. And um, uh, and I think what's quite distinctive about what Plato uh, was doing was that he uh, wasn't just um, taking existing myths and sort of like recasting them uh, as sort of, kind of like new uh, literary stagings. He was reinvent. He was inventing his own myths and uh, myths that were quite overtly philosophical insofar as they were kind of integrated into these, into these larger philosophical works. So I thought Plato was doing something quite interesting where he was uh, 
appropriating the conventions of an existing literary genre and turning it into a completely new genre of philosophical myth writing. And was the attention to this kind of genre of philosophical myth writing in Plato, was, did it always have to contend with the view of Plato as a rationalist philosopher? Oh, yes, I love that question so much. So, um, uh, yes and no. So, um, that uh, reputation, the canonical reputation uh, that I've just described of Plato being the sort of like champion of um, of uh, this kind of like progressive uh, uh, rational thinking that divorces itself from myth is the the version that we've inherited is a relatively late construction in um the reception of plato so that's uh, very much an enlightenment development uh which i think is in itself a kind of like negotiation of a bunch of uh conflicting warring accounts of the interpretation of plato that uh, made its way all the way down um so this is going to be a very crude um history but um kind of like the two kind of like dominant uh, uh, traditions of interpreting Plato that are sort of intention that sort of get uh, integrated into the Enlightenment account is um, uh, a tradition of skepticism. Um, and uh, that really begins kind of like in the academy that Plato founded, but kind of like three generations after Plato's death where uh, the philosophers, these, so these ancient Greek philosophers in the academy started really emphasizing the skeptical spirit of Socratic investigation and saying that that is the essence of uh, what Plato's philosophy was and that that is Plato's project. Um, so academic skeptics were quite uh, invested in um, kind of like denying the coherence of Plato's philosophy. Um, they, uh, If you really push academic skepticism into a certain direction, then it... Uh, the the great virtue of that kind of philosophy is kind of like the disavowal of certain knowledge. So the theory of forms becomes quite inconvenient. Um, so the dialogues that they like to read are kind of like the the dialogues that portray Socrates in action, kind of like interrogating interlocutors, and then ending in this aporetic uh, uh, conclusions that say, oh, well, I, you have failed to tell me, Euthyphro, what piety is. I will never know. And and that was kind of like the conclusion of philosophy. Um, but then there's also this alternate. Um, and so in that tradition, uh, the myths uh, would have been quite kind of like inconvenient um, and, and rather irrelevant things uh, f- floating in there that uh, didn't get emphasized. Um, whereas there is this other tradition, this like neoplatonic tradition, as we would call it, that uh, had these peaks in late antiquity and um, again in f- uh, 14th century Italy, where uh, the coherence of Plato's philosophy was something that di- did deserve uh, a great deal of emphasis. Um, so these were um, philosophers who and interpreters who really fixated on the theory of forms um, and uh, fixated on kind of like the extreme unity of the theory of forms, um, almost to the extent that it became this kind of like mystical thing that emphasized the unity of you know, the one or the or the form of the good that unites all the forms uh, uh, over which it um, it, it presides. Um, and there, the myths do become uh, important, but in in a very specific vein where. Um, it's sort of like the the vehicle by which um, uh, divine inspiration comes to be uh, 
uh, transmitted through the medium of uh, a divinely inspired poetic philosopher. Um, so these are kind of like the two uh, strands of Platonism kind of like working in the background until we get to the Enlightenment, where um, you get this reconciliation of um, the spirit of uh, skeptical inquiry that becomes a kind of ideal for what critical reason should be in philosophy, but also this idea that um, uh, you do uh, get this idea that you can have uh, a system of philosophy. You don't need to disavow knowledge and you can get to something like the theory of forms through critical reason. Sorry, that was that was extremely long. <laughs> Fascinating stuff. So, what, I mean, that does li- lead to a question that I had, that the book itself has such a striking range of figures. We have Thomas More, Francis Bacon, Leibniz, who you uh, mentioned earlier, Schlegel, and into the 20th century, people like Ernest Cassirer. As you're saying, what unites them is their insistence on the importance of mythological symbolism and belief in political life. But I, I am wondering how, how you decided which kinds of periods and authors you would focus on. Is is it because they are all uh, in conversation with the kind of neoplatonist tradition that you've uh, just outlined for us? Yeah, um, to some extent, yes. I think how I came upon um, these particular authors was sort of, uh, I think my a process of uh, eliminating uh, people was a kind of like a Venn diagram of like, uh, so like I needed authors who found, were, for whom Plato was very influential for their uh, for their thought. Uh, so um, to some extent, all the authors in, um, in in the book are people who were reading and studying Plato very carefully, um, and in some instances, actually imitating Plato. Um, and I also wanted them uh, to be people for whom myth was also important, especially uh, in kind of like the overlap between these two spheres. So uh, people for whom platonic myth was especially important. And then the last uh, Venn diagram uh, component would be people whose um, f- philosophies or, uh, or writings uh, had some sort of like political consequence. So um, I did want this to be a story about uh the, the afterlife of Plato's myths and modern political political thought in particular. Um, so that was the, the process by which I came uh, to these authors. Um, to the extent that they were uh, in conversation with kind of like Neoplatonism, to, yes, to some extent. Um, so, uh, but what they were doing was actually quite, um, it might be a subtle difference, but um, quite different from uh, what, uh, was going on in Neoplatonism. So uh, to varying extents, um, these authors were sort of pushing back against um, the role that had been carved out for myth in the Neoplatonic tradition as a sort of medium that uh, medium of inspiration that fills the gap between uh, human knowledge and uh, divine revelation or revelation that sort of like emanates from this uh, extreme, uh, unknowable, uh, overwhelmingly unified form of the good. Um, and uh, and they had a kind of more down-to-earth and like, like more earthly approach to, the, uh, to what myth was. So it wasn't this thing that was above human knowledge that filled um, some sort of gap. It was very much kind of like integrated with human efforts to... Um, <clears throat> to uh, work out uh, their understandings uh, of the world. 
Mm, really interesting. And, and in, just in terms, so we have a sense of the kind of intellectual landscape here and in, in terms of the distribution of these kinds of ideas in Enlightenment Europe and then later, uh, are we, is this uh, beginning in Italy and Germany? Where, where are these kinds of ideas really concentrated? Yeah, so it, um, uh, the, the, my, my first post-Plato chapter is, uh, is in, um, uh, is in early modern England, but, um, after that, uh, all my authors become uh, German, um, and uh, yeah, as you point out, that is uh, quite interesting. Um, for uh, for better or for worse, uh, Germany, especially around kind of like the the Enlightenment, starts developing a um, uh, a, a very particular um, fixation uh, with myth that doesn't quite appear as much in um, other intellectual traditions. Um, so it's uh, so briefly, um, uh, around the Enlightenment, so the Enlightenment is this big inflection point in the conceptualization of myth, where we get this story that uh, myth is somehow opposed to uh, philosophical reason and to philosophical progress, and uh, uh, philosophy would be a lot better off if we got rid of myth and all traces of myth um, uh, in our heritage. Uh, and uh, and that's also the time when we get this uh, this idea that Plato can be appropriated as a kind of figurehead for uh, those very ideals. Um, but Germany is where we see this uh, the complication of that idea as we, especially as we enter um, this age of uh, the German idealism, where uh, people start taking issue with the legacy of the Enlightenment and wondering if. Uh, these ideas had been pushed far enough. Um, and uh, yeah, in, in German culture in particular, uh, myth uh, is always, is not a thing that can be dismissed as mere nonsense as uh, had been the case in sort of like uh, early enlightenment treatments of myth. Um, in the German intellectual tradition, myth is quite consistently um, a force that is uh, has the potential to be immensely consequential um, and a part of uh, the cultural fabric. Um, and uh, this is why uh, I think people who are thinking very seriously about the role of myth um, in politics and philosophy are, are also turning to Plato and Plato's myths for kind of guidance on how to work out some of these questions. And how is that related to the more general uh, preoccupation with ancient Greece um, in German intellectual circles? Oh yes, very much. So um, there's the uh, this famous phrase uh, that um, uh, the tyranny of Greece over Germany. This uh, idea that um, uh, there was a point in the 18th century when uh, Germany uh, really turned to um, ancient Greek culture as a kind of ideal uh, for. Uh, a foil for both what they thought was kind of like lacking in uh, their contemporary modern culture and as an ideal for what um, a kind of way of life that they wanted to reinvigorate um, in, in their own culture. Um, and uh, and that's how kind of like the myths sort of get like uh, imported into that discussion because so much of what uh, gets uh, emphasized in the importation of Kind of like Greek culture uh, into German discourse is uh, filtered through 
uh, mythology because this this very much becomes like okay this is the central thing at the heart of uh, Greek culture. Um, you see uh, mythology expressed in the art of Greek um, in the ancient Greeks. You see it in the literature of ancient Greeks, um, and they really thought of mythology as this thing that. Uh, got expressed in kind of like all spheres of life um, in ancient Greece. Uh, and that's how they started studying mythology as, as something that held the key to understanding the Greek way of life. Mm. And uh, I mean, wh- one thing I'm struck by is, is uh, you mentioned earlier that C- uh, Cicero uh, also drew on on, on uh, Plato's, um, Plato's th- uh, ideas of the myth and that stylized s- similar kinds of narratives. But it seems that Cicero was less important yeah. as as a source as a kind of a source for thinking about myth and political life than than Plato himself. Is there that's a reason right. that Rome just kind of dropped out of the story? Yeah, um, that's a really great question. Um, Rome doesn't always drop out, but I think Rome is a lot less important to, uh, I guess, uh, the the kind of like the Greek philosophers um, who do make it into my book. I think for for the reasons that uh, we've described, somehow it was ancient Greece that was the the object of uh, fixation um, for these authors. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, and of course, what, uh, that leads to one of the philosophers who who plays a, a role in your book, it's, um, which is Nietzsche, and 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 his account of. Uh, Plato as a kind of rational philosopher in the birth of tragedy. Um, could you say a little bit about how Nietzsche is relating to this uh, earlier tradition of, of thinking about Greek culture as a culture of myth? Yeah, of course. So yeah, Nietzsche loved um, uh, Greek culture, and um, he, I think, had very much. Um, Nietzsche isn't always very good about, you know, like acknowledging um, uh, sources of his um, of, of his influence uh, of. Uh, inspiration for him. But I think Nietzsche had very much inherited uh, this German tradition of uh, being very fascinated by by Greek culture. And um, uh, But for Nietzsche, uh, Plato was um, the guy who came out and ruined uh, everything. Um, and uh, Nietzsche... So Nietzsche's valorization of Greek culture in part also had to do with uh, his admiration for the the role of uh, myth in Greek life. Um, and Plato was the one who came around and uh, uh, overemphasized the Apollonian strand of um of, of culture at the expense of the, the more mythic, dark uh, Dionysian strand. Um, and I found Nietzsche very uh, interesting that way because um, in a way, even though uh, Nietzsche is very critical of Plato and he sees him as the inaugurator of um, uh, like philosophy where it, it all goes wrong from there, um, Nietzsche does very much subscribe to uh, uh this uh, narrative about Plato that I'm very much trying to push back against, where Nietzsche does see Plato as um, this champion of this rationalized way of doing philosophy uh, at the expense uh, of myth and who um, also sets the course uh, for all of Western philosophy that comes after. Um, so to Nietzsche, I would say, but but look at Plato's myths. How, how would you interpret Plato's myths? Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And were there any intellectual circles in 19th century Germany, particularly, that um, did have the kind of mythic Plato uh, in mind and, and took him, took that more seriously? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And that's a big kind of gap in my in my book, because I sort of skip from the 18th century to the 20th century. Um, but I think that's where we are sort of like living in uh, kind of like the, the legacy of what the foundations that the German idealists and in particular the German romantics uh, had had planted in the culture. Um, so those are the, uh, the subjects of, uh, of my 18th century uh, chapter. Um, so I think that's when uh, th- these romantic ideals associated with um, what uh, myth could do uh, for politics really come to uh, enter kind of like popular and more kind of like cultural spheres of thinking. So um, uh, we were talking about Nietzsche um, and uh, we're sort of straying from Plato here, but um, Nietzsche is, of course, uh, very enamored with and has like a very fo- a famous falling out with uh, Wagner. But Wagner was someone who I think uh, had inherited certain strands of German romanticism and thought very much that okay, um, it is possible to uh, uh, create a new mythology for uh, the German people. And the way I'm going to do that is to um, take uh, Teutonic um, uh, mythological traditions and try to reinvent them for, for, for the stage or for the operatic stage. Right. I mean, and one thing I, that struck me in reading the chapters on, on uh, German idealism and German romanticism in your book uh, was uh, also the place of literature, particularly, and liter- and the literary as a whole in, in the story. Um, so, for instance, you describe Schlegel's uh, imagination of a, quote, genuinely poetic community for the modern era. So, I, you know, we talked about Wagner and, 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 and with Nietzsche, we can also talk about the Greek theater. But um, I wonder what role does, the, does a literary form like poetry in, in particular uh, play within the mythical? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and at least I can sort of answer uh, for the German idealists, and then uh, see where we go, go from there. Um, so uh, these are very the concepts of poetry and myth are just very uh, closely intertwined for um, people like Schlegel, uh, but they had a very uh, particular understanding of poetry as uh, um, not just kind of like. And like the road not taken, but poetry as a quintessentially creative act that uh, has very much to do with kind of like the Greek word for poetry, poesis, which is a kind of um, uh, creative, uh, creative making. Um, and uh, for the German Romantics, poetry sort of like symbolized kind of like all uh, creative activity. Um, and uh, the problem that they were kind of contending with was the idea that somehow uh, there was no creative spiritual freedom for um, individuals that made sense for them in uh, like modern culture. And they thought that was somehow uh, untrue to the true essence of what they called poetry, um, again, understood in this, the broadest uh, possible conception. Um 
And uh, they thought the essence of poetry um, was that it poetry, art, etc., was uh, that it like brought people together instead of kind of like individual poets uh, isolated in society doing their own thing and not uh, collaborating on anything that was unified. And this is where Greek mythology served. It um, served as a source of inspiration for um, uh, and as a kind of model for uh, what they were thinking. So they're like, okay, so like Greek mythology occupies this uh, super central place in uh, Greek culture to the extent that it pervades all forms of art in Greek culture as they as they imagined it. And they thought that reviving uh, that kind of role for mythology in um, modern culture uh, could help remedy the situation where kind of like poets were... Uh, creating individual works that didn't necessarily speak to each other or build on each other. Um, so in the same way that uh, Greek individual Greek poets and tragedians would um, kind of contribute to the existing body of mythology that they had already inherited in um, ancient Greek culture, they thought that modern poets and artists and creative folk uh, might be able to do the same if uh, they had a new mythology that everyone was kind of drawing from and contributing to uh, in turn. So mythology and poetry is a kind of almost civic culture in many ways. Yeah, very much, at least uh, in that context. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's also, it's it's particularly striking then that, they, that there is a, a preoccupation with Plato, given the... Uh, the kind of standard view of how Plato viewed poets and poetry in the Republic as a kind of potentially subversive, dangerous uh, act, right? Yeah, indeed. And um, and uh, Plato's banishment of the poets, uh, I think is very much tied to kind of like Plato's uh, complicated relationship to um, uh, myth uh, in his period. So I think poetry uh, back then was sort of like... Uh, one of the default um, mediums uh, through which a, a pre-existing uh, mythological culture uh, found expression. So, uh, you know, you would have like, um, I don't know, like the, the myth of Icarus, for instance, and you might see uh, this depicted in a particular Greek statue, but the way we kind of like know about it is also kind of like if like people wrote about Icarus and like put it on for uh, the stage um, uh, or uh, pe- people wrote epic poems about it. Um, so things like that. So these are, those are sort of like the genre differences that I think we were uh, talking about. And Plato's condemnation of poetry uh, very much uh, is tied to um, his condemnation of uh Greek mythological culture as it stood in his time, because uh, when Plato is sort of criticizing uh, contemporary poetry, uh, all the poetry that he's criticizing contains mythological material, because there really was not a lot of, um, or at the time he wasn't uh, thinking of uh, other kinds of poetry where they're kind of like making up stuff without references to, to mythology. Yeah. And, um, Moving into the 20th century in our story, um, you know, following your chapter four, um, could you say a little bit about how the Platonic theory of myth and the, and the reinvention of the, of the Platonic theory of myth, how it responded to the particular developments of the 20th century? I mean, as you note, mythology came to have a somewhat unsavory reputation uh, in the 20th century. It came to be associated with excesses of nationalism, particularly of fascism. 
Um, and we can see this in Karl Popper's critical remarks on myth, for instance, which, which you discuss. So how did uh, someone like Ernest Cassirer, for instance, who, who's uh, trying to think about Platonic myth, how, how, how was a figure like that responding to the ways myth was being understood in the 20th century? Oh, yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, so, yeah, so as you mentioned, the 20th century becomes this huge inflection point um, for kind of like the history of people thinking about myth, because that's when uh, Nazism happened. And on, up until then, I think all speculation on whether there can be um, mythology in modern uh, politics and culture was quite speculative. Um, and then uh, the Nazis happened, and for everyone uh, living through that period, somehow it just becomes like paradigmatically self-evident that when uh, there is a resurgence of myth in modern culture, like Nazism and fascism is what it looks like. So that really ups the stakes for the place of myth and culture. And it just seems that, okay, if Nazism is what happens when people tolerate myth and culture, then maybe that's just too high a price to pay. Um, and it really helps <laughs> affirm the standard view that uh, myth is something that uh, is this regressive force that um, we should ideally be moving away from. Um, and uh, the 20th century, uh, for those reasons, becomes like this period where uh, a lot of the themes that we've been kind of like uh, talking about just really come to collide. So um, pe uh, this is uh, the theme of the place of myth in um, modern culture and politics, but also the idea of Plato as the, uh, the founding figure of a coherent Western intellectual tradition that kind of like culminates in whatever philosophy is today. Um, uh, and the fact that Plato did write uh, these myths into his philosophy and these three themes seem like incompatible um, uh, claims um, or the, the idea that um, Plato can be this uh, rational figure um, who also wrote myths, but also it looks like myths are bad. Um, so this is why uh, I think we get, say, like people like Nietzsche having to take aside and ignore the myths and um, portray Plato as uh, the inaugurator of uh, a rational tradition that ended up somehow being bad for all of culture. And with uh, the advent of Nazism, you get um, a pauper who uh, you just mentioned uh, taking... Uh, a similar verdict on Plato, but for very different reasons. So Popper is noticing the myths and saying like, actually, Plato is not the guy that we thought he was. He is, he did inaugurate this entire Western um, uh, tradition of thinking, but actually he put myth at the center in the first place. Popper has this famous line where he uh, compares the, um, the myth of Ur or the noble lie uh, to the Nazi myth of blood and soil. Um, and he thinks Plato is the guy who planted uh, these uh, th these horrible and destructive mythic seeds into the stream of Western culture in the first place. Um, uh, so th these are the kind of tensions that people are trying to work out, um, and uh, they produce kind of like different results. And Kassir is also grappling with all these themes. So the, the idea that Plato is this founding figure, uh, what do we do then with um, uh, the Plato's legacy, should should it be a good thing or a bad thing, and where do the myths fit in? And um, and 
Kassir, we, the, I think the chapter um, on Kassir sort of um, ends on a somewhat ambivalent note because Kassir is someone who really wants to hold on to both the idea that uh, Plato is a good guy and that the legacy of Plato, the, uh, the Western intellectual tradition, is something that is ultimately good and progressive and something worth saving instead of throwing out, like, say, like Popper suggests. Um, and he also wants to hold on to this progressive vision of culture uh, where um, we can, in fact, move beyond myths. But then he also finds Plato's myths extremely interesting and uh, philosophically significant. Um, and the way he sort of like goes about re- trying to triangulate uh, these uh, three themes is uh, by making a bit of space, I think, um, in his philosophy of culture for uh, um, rec- acknowledging Plato's accomplishment as uh, someone who is taking myth and uh, turning it into a distinct philosophical genre, even where it seems sort of in tension with uh, the larger ideals of what he thinks is um, uh, philosophically desirable and finding creative means of reworking uh, philosophy, um, kind of in unexpected places by uh, reworking literary genres. And in doing that, does, is Kassir ever reaching back to earlier interpreters of Plato in the 18th century um, or earlier? Yeah, well, not that I can think of. My suspicion is that uh, Kassir is getting, so I mean, Kassir is, uh, first of all, extremely well-read and, you know, is just uh, um, this paradigmatic figure who uh, was very, like, classically educated in um uh, this uh, in he was like the embodiment of German building. He um, uh, read everything and uh, knew the the tradition very well. Um, I th- sense that he's getting a lot of his Plato from uh, Werner Jaeger, but I'm not I, I, I'm not sure if I, I can uh, I, I would necessarily die on that hill. Right. Um, and could you give us a sense of what what happens to these two interpretations? I mean. It's, uh, are pop uh, uh, does someone like Popper ever respond to ca- the Kassir attempt to rehabilitate Plato in the mythic tradition? Are these two tra- uh, strands of interpretation ever in conversation with each other? Yeah, that's great. So um, I, I am quite surprised that there was uh, that Popper and Kassir haven't been brought together uh, more often um, uh, because they, to some extent, the. Popper's verdict on Plato sort of represents this uh, verdict that's sort of available to Kassir when he's uh, trying to um, think through uh, where Plato's, what he wants to do about, I don't know, like Plato's um, Plato's legacy and uh, what he wants to do about Plato's, the fact of Plato's myths. Um, and Popper represents a kind of like road not taken for Kassir, because I think Kassir is, for one reason or another, still very committed to... Um, liking Plato in a way that uh, that Popper um, Popper isn't. Right. And um, I mean, one thing I'm curious about is whether the 18th century fixations on things like a civic culture, um, kind of the role of poetry and mythology in cultivating a community, do those things become relevant for the 20th century attempt to rehabilitate Plato in the mythic tradition at all? Yeah, so, um, uh, sorry, and I I also didn't quite answer your your last question. Um, It's quite unclear how much take up uh, there is of... um, 
this tradition that I've uh, sort of tried to reconstruct in my book. And um, at one level, uh, Kassir's own star um, ends up fading because he um, uh, he very much becomes uh, this sort of anachronistic philosopher whose uh, vision of uh, cultural progress starts looking quite whiggish and outdated um, as the events, uh, as people begin to reconcile with uh, the the events of the 20th century and people start going for kind of like flashier philosophies that um, uh, call for a more foundational overhaul of uh, of that inheritance and legacy. so, uh, so, so, uh, to the extent that Kassir's philosophy doesn't really end up having uh, a very outsized uh, influence in kind of like what happens afterwards, uh, we don't really hear much from, uh, say, like Kassir's Plato either. Whereas, kind of like Popper's interpretation of Plato does have a great deal of uptake, um, even though people uh, don't really take. Um, Popper's actual reading of Plato seriously, they do very much start taking on board, especially as uh, the events of the twentieth century, the mid twentieth century, end up giving into uh, the Cold War. People really start um, uh, there. Popper's idea of Plato as uh, someone who wields myth um, uh, against. Um, the ideals of an open society starts um, having a lot of uh, uptake in the Cold War. And I think it even starts entering kind of like popular discourse. And I think these two Plato's are kind of like uh, Popper's Plato, uh, who uh, uses myth in this unsavory ways and um, uh, uses myth uh, against what he thinks are the ideals of philosophy and philosophically and for politics sort of hovers alongside the enlightenment Plato that I mentioned of um, Plato, who is like a good guy who founded uh, uh, a a coherent intellectual tradition of uh, being anti-myth. And I think these uh, two Plato's have both made their way into our our own uh, popular interpretation of Plato. Um, But now I've lost sight of your, uh, of your second question. Oh, about um, civic culture in uh, 20th century. Um, Again, not so much because I think um, I'm going to have to think about this, Um, but I guess what happens uh, is um, in the, in sort of the way that uh, Kassir's Plato never really makes it, um, doesn't have the same amount of uptake, uh, Plato also starts um, uh, disappearing somewhat from uh, discussions of uh, myth um, in uh, the latter half of the 20th century. Um, So uh, in the wake of Nazism, people continue to be quite uh, interested in the relationship between myth and um, philosophy and politics up into kind of like the 80s or even early 90s. Uh, but Plato falls off. And I think this um, has uh, at, at some level to do with um, people no longer uh, doing that kind of like grand historical uh, uh, overview of the the entire Western tradition that uh, was kind of like popular at the beginning of the 20th century and um, the very idea of like a coherent 
Western <laughs> tradition uh, rightly uh, starts being more problematized and uh, and fragmented. Um, and sorry, this is a very long-winded way of answering your question about civic culture, uh, but I think that's where uh, Plato's influence doesn't um, really make its way into those discussions. Yeah, I mean, in reading your book, I was just struck by how the mythic Plato is never the Plato that we teach to undergraduates or even graduate students, really. I mean, it's, it hasn't made its way into curricula. That's correct. Yeah. Um, but the discussion of fascism does bring raise the larger point that we touched on briefly at the beginning, which is, what do we mean by myth exactly in the book, right? I mean, um, is there a distinction, meaningful distinction to be drawn between the kinds of narratives around which a kind of fascist politics might coalesce, um, or even conspiratorial thinking, and myth as uh, we're understanding it through Plato. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. And I think um, this might not be a very satisfying answer, but I think my I, I, I'm currently a, a bit agnostic about it. Um, but it is the case that um, something that I found very weird throughout the process of writing this book is that myth uh, is this like weirdly um, disproportionate concept so it's like a concept that's taken on like a disproportionate amount of uh very fraught meanings um when at the end of the day it does seem to be this like very specific literary genre but then uh it's also come to stand for kind of like all the things uh that we talk about today like conspiratorial thinking um you know uh stuff at the bottom of like nationalism or like populist thinking um and i guess i also mentioned kind of like kind of like post-truth political culture. And um, I'm a bit agnostic on uh, to what extent we can productively draw all of these kind of like scattered uh, phenomena under the heading of myth. Um, and that is uh, just the conceptual history of how uh, myth has evolved as the sort of like catch-all category for um, a whole bunch of forms of figurative thinking. Um, at the same time, I think it is an interesting exercise to take uh, that seriously. And I think when we take it seriously, what uh, we see is that we uh, get to have a renewed appreciation for uh, the significant and consequential roles that these kind of like forms of thinking that we call myths um, uh, seem to play in um, in contemporary life. So it's uh, no longer the case that we can kind of like uh, pretend that these things are things that we somehow should have outgrown because we have outgrown uh, traditional literary myths in the same way. Um, uh, and what Plato and his successors were doing was, I think, uh, exploring that idea by uh, reinventing a quite narrow and specific genre of uh, philosophical myth and saying, can we use this uh, limited genre uh, to start exploring uh, some of the more elusive phenomena underlying our thinking and culture uh, that perhaps cannot be accessed quite as easily uh, using kind of like uh, the traditional toolkits of philosophy, but which might be uh, reached and engaged with and maybe even reshaped uh, through the writing of philosophical myths. And you mentioned that the post-truth question was not directly on your mind when you began the project, but it became more and more salient. So could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, 
and this is where I am uh, sort of uh, flailing a bit about because I'm not really sure if I have uh, definite positions on um, what I want to prescribe to people. But um, at one level, I think uh, what people are beginning to recognize is that uh, post-truth is... um, we talk about it as a kind of uh, era of disinformation and people kind of like spewing uh, facts that uh, things that are not factually correct. And um, if we uh, take seriously the kind of like rhetoric around um, uh, some of these things as somehow mythical in some way. So when people talk about kind of like the the myths that enter our political and cultural discourse um, in these particularly unsalient ways that uh, uh, this, these particularly unconstructive ways that uh, are associated with post-truth politics, um, then we're not really concerned with uh, facts that need to or uh, claims that need to be factually debunked anymore. I think we should um, be uh, digging a bit deeper um, into kind of like the, the figurative, imaginative, and the narrative uh, things underlying uh, these uh, these uh, lies and um, uh, pieces of disinformation. Um, so it's the idea that there might be kind of like narrative or imaginative frameworks of meaning that are getting activated when we get certain pieces of, uh, of disinformation. And uh, what I think Plato and um, uh, his successors in this tradition uh, try to help us see is that um, it's not really enough to um, uh, ignore the, the things that uh, look like myths in our culture today, um, hoping that kind of like the the mechanisms of rational progress will kind of like extinguish it and uh, eventually. Um, and it's also not enough to try to try to try to uh, debunk debunk each of these things using facts and arguments. Um, uh, but I think they think that we should be actively acknowledging the the ways in which these frameworks, for better or for worse, do seem to be a source of meaning to the people who subscribe to them. We should be digging uh, deeper down and uh, and we should be trying to find more creative and uh, potentially figurative means of, of engaging with them. Perfect. And um, are you continuing to explore these themes in your uh, new work? Um, what what are you interested in now nowadays? Yeah. Um, so I uh, so this was a book that uh, explored some of these larger questions that uh, <laughs> that I've been trying to gesture at uh, through the lens of Plato and um, and his legacy. Uh, and um, in my current work, I'm trying to move beyond that by dropping the Plato stuff and. Um, and examining uh, what these debates uh, turn into kind of in the mid and late 20th century, especially in uh, German philosophy. So I'm in particular looking at uh, uh, this um, German philosopher of myth, Hans Blumenberg, um, kind of in the context of uh, his contemporary uh, culture and trying to reconstruct what uh, some of these debates around uh, symbolic thinking were uh, for, for their time. Fantastic. I mean, that also speaks to so much. There's just so much interest in myth in the 20th century, at the uh, carried out by people who are somehow at the margins of our canon of political thought. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
Uh, I, I mean, in, the, in your book, I was also struck by the discussion of Freud, Jung, I mean, all these other people who are really so thinking so much about myth, but who, for some reason, we haven't taken uh, taken uh, those writings as reflections on politics very seriously. Yeah, that's correct. So I think like um, a lot of, uh, th- there is a lot of theory out there, uh, social theory out there that does uh, take seriously the possibility that myth might be a more a permanent fixture of our political reality than we might, uh, political theorists might want to acknowledge, but they do seem to come from traditions that are sort of uh, political theory adjacent without being political theory itself. So like social sociology, anthropology, um, bits of psychoanalysis, like, like, like you, um, like you suggest. Excellent. So, well, very much looking forward to your uh, new project. And again, the book is fascinating. Um, thank you so much for joining me today, Taeyeon. No, thank you so pleasure. much for having me and uh, for, for your really wonderful questions. <laughs> <laughs>